The following program does not offer personal medical advice. Please consult your doctor before using any treatment or product we cover. Welcome to Go to Health Radio with your host, Jonathan Marks. We provide a welcoming environment where experts educate you on important health topics, answer your questions, and provide information from which you can benefit in consultation with your doctor. And now, here is Jonathan Marks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. This is a really hot topic I want to talk about today. I'm going to be appearing on the show alone today because I really want to cover this in detail. Um, We're going to talk today about evidence-based medicine, what it is, and why we have it. So the question is, why am I doing this today? Three reasons, really. We've all been exposed to the recent vaccine development process with the new COVID vaccines that have come out in the last year. So on the periphery, we've had some exposure to how vaccines are developed and the trials they go through. Number two is we have an upsurge in the COVID D or Delta variant and new misunderstandings that are growing. And I'd like to work with that a little bit. And three, because of this COVID exposure around the world, I think it's a good time and an important time for all of us to take this opportunity to better understand medical science and take advantage of what it has to offer. So in today's show, we're going to be talking about a couple of different topics. I want to talk about evidence-based medicine and what that is. I want to distinguish between correlation versus causation. An example of that is a correlation is ice cream and murder both increase during the summer months. So the question is, are they just correlated? Do they happen together? Or does ice cream cause murder? Or does murder cause ice cream? It, you know, it taking eating more ice cream. So the question is, is it correlation to are things happening together or is one thing causing another? And it's a lot of confusion that happens in our anecdotal experience uh, with uh, health, health conditions. We may see things that happen together, but they may have absolutely nothing to do with each other in terms of causation. The third thing I want to talk about is some examples of misinformation. And I want to Uh, share with you some classic uh, examples of that. And I'm also going to include COVID in in that. And then finally, I want to talk about resources about medical communications so that you can learn more about how medical communications is done. Before I start with all that, I wanted to share with you a little bit more about my background. So I have a BA in psychology from Stanford University. So I studied psychology in my undergraduate years. And then I went on to get a master's in business administration from Stanford. With that, I had a 25 year career in multimedia communications companies, cable television, the yellow pages and high speed internet, what you now know as a cable modem It was one of the companies uh, that I participated in or was president of where we actually brought high-speed internet to many areas of the country. In the last 20 years, since 2001, I've taken all that communications experience and I've become an entrepreneur running my own projects in health education for the public and continuing medical education for health professionals. So examples of some projects I've worked on for nine years, I have trained with my faculty, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and how to produce effective medical communications. 
Um, I work with them in, in, you know, making sure that they know how to produce met, uh, effective communications in health and medicine. Since 2014, I've run a large website with medical experts. It was originally funded by the government and we're now funded by pharmaceutical companies. The website is called ADHD in Adults. It is evidence-based. We are not um, at all influenced by our funding um, sources. We've trained over 28,000 healthcare professionals online in how to screen for, diagnose, and treat adults with ADHD. And again, that's at ADHDinadults.com. We also have 560,000 views on our YouTube channel all about ADHD. About 5% of the U.S. population or the population worldwide has ADHD, so it's quite a large number of people who do have the disorder. In addition, since 2018, for the last three and a half years, I've been working with 18 university hospitals across Europe who are doing a fascinating study. They've gotten funded by the EU to study how our lifestyle and nutrition affect our mental health. So they're running clinical trials on things such as do probiotics help, do uh, vitamins help your mental health? Uh, does the Mediterranean diet, which is low in fat and high in vegetable and fish content, does that improve health? Um, also, we're doing elimination diet. Does eliminating certain foods, especially inflammatory foods, does that improve mental health? We've got fascinating blogs there, over 180 blogs on that written by our scientists. And you can learn more about that at newbrainnutrition.com. And then finally, I'll talk just briefly and I'll mention it at the end. Um, I have a medical communications website called medicalwritingnetwork.com. And there I share a lot of the trainings that I've done over the years with the CDC about how to do effective medical communications. Um, and if you peruse that or, or, you know, visit that, you can start to understand the science behind medical communications itself and how to do it well. And this background has all brought me and inspired me to found and host the Go to Health show with the intention of helping both you, the public, learn about health sciences. I'm sorry, you, the public health, learn about health science and to help scientists and health professionals get their word out to the public more efficiently. They're very good at doing their research and um, producing products, uh, but they may not be as strong in getting the word out. And with my communications background, that's where I help. Um, so I'm really um, inspired by being the communicator between the health professional and the public about what's going on in medicine. And that's really the, um, the purpose of the Go to Health show. My desire, and it's really in our, um, our motto, is to help you elevate your life with health expert news you can use. I want you to take action to improve your life and health. We're not just talking about things. We're really encouraging you to do things. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we always say check with your doctor before you try anything we suggest because you really should be under the care of your doctor. So let me get to the first topic, which is evidence-based medicine. What is it? It's uh, called EBM for short, evidence-based medicine. And it is, and this is quoted from a JAMA 1992 um, uh, article, evidence-based medicine is the conscientious, explicit, 
and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. The aim of EBM is to integrate the experience of the, of the clinician, the values of the patient, and the best available scientific information to guide decision-making around clinical management. The term was originally used to describe an approach to teaching the practice of medicine and improving decisions by individual physicians about a patient's health and an individual's patient an individual patient health. So it's very personalized. Um, this has got quite a history to it. Uh, the first published report describing the conduct and results of a controlled clinical trial is a story that my mother told me, and maybe your mother did too. It was by, she didn't know all the details, but it was about scurvy and eating oranges and citrus fruits. It was done uh, by James Lind, who was a Scottish naval surgeon who conducted research on scurvy during his time aboard HMS Salisbury. Lynn divided his sailors participating in the experiment into six groups so that the effects of various treatments could be fairly compared. And he found improvement in symptoms and signs of scurvy among the group of men treated with lemons and oranges. Now, I don't know if he knew about vitamin C, but vitamin C is the common element there. And um, he published a treatise describing the results of this experiment. Now, listen to this year in 1753. So evidence-based medicine has been around for a while. David Eddy first began to use the term evidence-based in 1987. So it's been a more recent development in workshops and a manuscript uh, commissioned by the Council of Medical Specialty Societies to teach formal methods for designing clinical practice guidelines. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit. The manual was eventually published by the American College of Physicians. And he first published the term evidence-based in 1990 in the Journal of American Medical Association. The pertinent evidence must be, he said, identified, described, and analyzed. The policymakers must determine whether the policy is justified by the evidence. A rationale must be written. So this is not just hearsay. This is not common practice. This is about guiding medicine based on evidence. And then the term evidence-based medicine was introduced slightly later in medical education in 1990 and 1992, and it was used to describe a new approach to teaching the practice of medicine. And in 1996, David Sackett and his colleagues clarified the definition of evidence-based medicine, as I read before, the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. <coughs> Excuse me. Population-based data are applied to the care of an individual. So what we do is we do studies on not just an individual, but on groups of individual and large populations to see what we can learn about evidence. And then this can be effectively applied to individual treatment. Again, taking into account the specifics of the patient's preferences and also the individual conditions of the patients. So when we talk about evidence, there are really two types of evidence that you should be aware of. One is 
Um, what's the quality of the evidence of a study? There have been lots of medical studies done that supposedly have evidence, but one of the wonderful things about science the way we do it today is that methods are always um, elucidated in any written study. Exactly what did the researchers do, with whom, how did they do it? And the reason for that is so that if somebody else wants to replicate the study, they can do it and we see if they get the same results. Also, in um, medical science, when results are published, a lot of times uh, the researcher will say, here are the strengths of this research, and here are the shortcomings of the studies we did, and here's where more research is needed. So the publishing of medical research is really a communication among a, a worldwide society of health professionals who are learning from each other about what evidence is showing. And of course, this evidence can be based on cultural differences. It can be based on racial differences. It can be based on gender differences. Um, but as we pull together worldwide as a health and scientific community, we have a wonderful base of evidence that we can use in recommending, uh, recommending medical treatments and, and, uh, and um, medications and devices. Now, there are a couple of different rant, uh, there are a couple of different styles of studies. One kind of study is uh, basically a study of a few people without a control group or studies that compare treated patients to those that are not treated. Um, that's one kind. It's kind of informal, but it gives you a, a, it may be a good kind of study to do at first to see if there's a direction you could pursue. Another type of study is called an observational study, where you give a treatment to a group of people and they report their own reactions. Now, that has some strengths and it has some weaknesses, and the weaknesses are that people can sometimes misreport what's actually happening to them. Then there are non-randomized control studies, and in these studies, the group is the treatment group is compared to a group that receives a placebo treatment, which is a fake treatment, which is not expected to work. And what happens is that you compare the results that scientists compare measurable results of the treatment group versus the placebo group. And then the gold standard that we really run by today is what's called randomized controlled trials. And that's where participants are randomly placed into the treatment or placebo groups. The, the patients don't know whether they're getting the treatment or the placebo. And the investigator does not know which group or any of any particular patient is in. So they simply look at the data only and they only know what did the, were they in the treatment group or the placebo group and they analyze the data without any kind of bias. And the, of course the patient is not biased because they don't know what they are getting, whether it's the actual treatment or the placebo. And then finally, when uh, studies have been done one of the other things that can be done is something called the systematic review and medical, um, I'm sorry, meta-analysis of randomized trials. And that's where uh, somebody is looking at these clinical randomized trials that have been done and kind of putting all that data together to see what kind of overall analysis can be done and what kind of general conclusions can be made on similar studies because many similar studies are done around the world and a meta-analysis basically takes a look at all of that and puts it together. 
So these are the kinds of different trials and studies that we do based on evidence. Now, it's possible to have high quality evidence proving that a treatment works, but the treatment might not work very well. So it's important to consider not only the quality of the data, but also the treatment effect, which is also called the effect size. So, so for example, many people today want to treat symptoms with natural agents, such as holistic or organic foods, specific vitamins or probiotics. And those studies are compared with the results of trials using medications. And often to date, the use of medications has a stronger effect, while the natural agents may only have a small effect. So when we do evidence-based studies, again, we're looking about a quality study that can be replicated and proven. And then we're also looking at the size of the treatment effect. And if, a, uh, if something is proved very well, it may have a small treatment effect, and we may not want to use that as a solution for people's health problems. So that's kind of an overview of evidence-based medicine. What I want to talk about in our next segment is correlation versus causation, which is, is something, do, do two things happen together or does one thing cause the other? And I'll give you some examples of that. I also want to give you some examples of misinformation that is in the public and also sometimes in scientific studies, including with COVID, uh, so that we can recognize what misinformation can be. And then finally, I want to talk about resources about medical communication so you can know where to look to learn a little bit more. So stick with us. After the break, uh, we'll be talking more about correlation versus causation, misinformation, uh, a lot of information about COVID, and then resources you can use. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to continue. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, so we're continuing our uh, discussion about evidence-based medicine, what it is, and why we have it today. In this section, I want to talk about um, misinformation that's out there, and let me, I want to give you three key examples that I think are beautifully instructive for what we're dealing with today with COVID. The first one I want to talk about, again, because of my work in this area, is the myth that the ADHD diagnosis people with ADHD, it was developed to justify the use of drugs to subdue the behaviors of children. So in other words, uh, ADHD doesn't really exist, and this has been posited by a number of people, and that it's really the drug companies that have created this disorder uh, so they can sell more medications. Now, this is one of the more bizarre myths about ADHD. The theory here is that in order to sell more drugs, pharmaceutical companies invented the diagnosis of ADHD to describe normal children who were causing problems at younger ages. Now, the fact is that ADHD was discovered by doctors long before ADHD medications were discovered. People who believe in this myth simply do not know the history of ADHD. In 1798, that's quite a while ago, long before there were any drugs for ADHD, Alexander Crichton, a Scottish doctor, described a disease of attention. ADHD symptoms were later described by a German doctor, Heinrich Hochmann, in 1845 and by a British doctor, George Still, in 1902. And each of these doctors found that inattentive and overactive behaviors could lead to a problem that should be of concern to doctors. If they'd had medication to treat ADHD, they probably would have subscribed to them, prescribed them. But a medication for ADHD was not discovered until 1937, and even then by accident. Dr. Charles Bradley from Providence, Rhode Island, had been doing brain scanning studies of troubled children in a hospital school. The scans left the children with headaches that Dr. Bradley thought would be relieved by an amphetamine drug. When he gave this drug to the children after the scan, it didn't help their headaches. However, the next day, their teachers reported that the children were attending and behaving much better in the classroom. And what happened was that Dr. Bradley had accidentally discovered that amphetamine was very helpful in reducing ADHD symptoms. And in fact, amphetamine drugs are commonly used to treat ADHD today. So the diagnosis of ADHD was not invented by anyone. It was discovered by doctors long before ADHD was known. Um, Further, ADHD, and this is, this is really amazing, ADHD was first recognized in young boys who were hyperactive. So these boys were treated with developing medications. But what happened is as the boys grew into teenage years, their behavior calmed down. 
doctors thought the boys were outgrowing their ADHD. This was correlation. Older boys know ADHD, but the doctors presumed causation. They thought that age, the boys growing older, must diminish ADHD. So teenage boys were taken off their medication and no longer treated simply because they got older. Now here's the tragedy. It wasn't until the 1980s that further researchers research showed that two thirds of ADHD children grew into ADHD adults. It was also found that ADHD occurs equally in females versus males. And we now have a population of over 10 million ADHD adults in the United States, 90% of whom are undiagnosed and unmedicated because of this previous belief that ADHD remitted in the teenage years because teenage boys were calmer and taken off their medication. Well, that was just maturity. It didn't mean the ADHD went away. These ADH adults as a group have lower success in school, lower success at work and salary earnings. They also have more divorce, more social trouble, <clears throat> more addictions. And because they are now only newly diagnosed, these adults, we are just beginning to learn about ADHD in aging adults. We really don't know about it yet. We're just learning about it because the first generation of people who have been diagnosed with ADHD and are being treated are now growing into aging adults. And so we now have the question, um, you know, we might think that um, that symptoms in older adults is dementia, but it could well be ADHD. So there are now ongoing new studies about ADHD in aging adults. So that's one huge example of really misunderstanding um, that we need to correct and has been corrected, although it, ADHD rumors are still out there uh, but we're working, you know, to really get that science out that ADHD is a valid diagnosis and uh, has significant effects and that medications can really help. Now, let me tell you another one. I've, I've learned of this uh, recently, but I've kind of heard about it. And that's COVID vaccines and infertility. People are passing around stories that the COVID vaccine causes infertility. Why? Because couples have a hard time getting pregnant after they take the COVID vaccine. So the question is, is this correlation? Do these things go together or are they causative? Now there could be a number of other explanations for um, infertility uh, as you know, in couples. One is difficulty getting pregnant could be happening because of the age of the parents, completely independent of the vaccine. Difficulty getting pregnant because uh, the pregnancy is an attempt at a third or fourth child and it can be more difficult getting pregnant in the third or fourth pregnancy. And the only thing the COVID vaccine does is provide instructions, and I'll talk a little bit more about this. The only thing the COVID vaccine does is provide instructions to the cell for how to make a part of a protein that looks like the coronavirus so that when the body um, is confronted with coronavirus, it has already created antibodies because of the vaccine. And the vaccine never goes into the cell or touches the DNA. It's simply an instruction. Um, and, and, the, and the cell then, or the body starts creating antibodies. So again, we have causation versus correlation. Two things happen together. Does one thing cause the other? <clears throat> 
So it's always a question we need to ask. Just because two things are happening together doesn't mean there's a causal relationship. We need to investigate that before we start making uh, conclusions. Here's another one. Here's another thing. There are uh, anti-vax, um, you know, the anti-vax movement is quite large. And the question um, comes up, is natural immunity better than vaccination? So a natural infection, if you get infected with something, might provide better immunity than, than vaccination, but there are serious risks. For example, a natural, a natural chickenpox infection could lead to pneumonia. A natural polio infection could cause permanent paralysis. A natural mumps infection could lead to deafness. A natural influenza type B infection could result in permanent brain damage or even death. Vaccination can help prevent these diseases and their potentially serious complications. So it really is, you're, you're really playing with odds here. Would you rather get the vaccine or would you rather be exposed to the risk of the diseases? And we have the same question here with COVID. Would you rather get the vaccine and be safe from the COVID, from the COVID, you know, from the COVID virus, or do you want to take your chance, hope that you don't get it? Maybe you get it. Maybe you won't get very sick, but you could pass it to somebody else in your family, or an older person, or an immunocompromised person, where they get very sick and perhaps pass away. So we're dealing with risk here. Now, any vaccine can cause can cause side effects, and usually these side effects are minor like a low-grade fever or soreness at the injection site. Some vaccines temporarily cause a headache, fatigue, or loss of appetite, but rarely a person might, might experience a severe allergic reaction or neurological side effects such as a seizure. But although these are rare side effects are a concern, the risk of a vaccine causing serious harm or death is extremely small. Why? Because they've been tested. And we'll talk about that testing in just a moment here. So we have to weigh the benefits of getting a vaccine against the much greater possible side effects for not being vaccinated. Now, let me share a, a huge story. And this really was a, a big impetus for the anti-vax movement. Vaccines were originally, not originally, in the 1990s, they were thought to cause autism. And it was specifically one vaccine, the MMR, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. And it's now been proven that vaccines do not cause autism. Despite much controversy on the topic, researchers have not found a connection between autism and childhood in vaccines. In fact, the original study that ignited the debate years ago has been retracted. So this started in 1995, where a group of British researchers published a study showing that individuals who had been vaccinated with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine were more likely to have a bowel disease that could have neuropsychiatric effects or autism. Part of the hypothesis that the vaccination was associated with autism had been suggested previously by a few researchers. Proven, no suggested. This hypothesis had been systematically investigated when Dr. Wakefield in England began to interrogate it. In 1998, Dr. Wakefield, along with 12 co-authors, published a case series study in The Lancet claiming that they found evidence in many of the 12 cases they studied, only 12, that 
<clears throat> the measles virus in the digestive systems of children who had exhibited autism, autism symptoms after vaccination. Though in the paper they stated they could not demonstrate a causal relationship between the vaccination and autism, Wakefield suggested in a video that a causal relationship existed between the vaccine, the vaccine and autism. And he, he then recommended that the combination MMR vaccine be suspended in favor of a single antigen vaccination given separately over time. Now, curiously, Wakefield himself had filed for a patent for a single antigen measles vaccine in 1997. And today he would seem to have, he would be seen to have a potential financial interest in promoting his view. And right now, as we do medical um, evidence today, doctors and researchers have to show what commercial relationships they have or to show that they don't have a conflict of interest. And over the next few years, it was also shown that lawyers had paid the doctor because they were wanting to sue some vac vaccine companies. So the doctor got paid for this analysis. So in 2004, um, the, the editor of Lancet wrote that Wakefield should have revealed to the journal that he'd been paid by attorneys. And, and the, the editor claimed that Wakefield's research was fatally flawed. Most of the co-authors of the study retracted the interpretation in the paper. And in 2010, the Lancet formally re retracted the paper itself. And three months after the retraction, in May 2010, Britain's General Medical Council banned Wakefield from practicing medicine in Britain, saying that he had shown callous disregard for children in the course of his research. So here's an example of a research where there was bias. And we've put in place as a result of this, a lot of other safeguards, both in terms of the number of people who are in a study and also the financial implication, you know, the financial connections of a researcher so that this would not happen again. But again, here's, here's, here are examples of where things are really, um, you know, can be very dangerous if we don't have evidence-based medicine. So let me talk briefly about COVID vaccines. Now, the COVID vaccines that many of us have been taking, and I include myself as one, are the mRNA vaccine, and it's a new type of vaccine to protect against infectious diseases. To trigger an immune response, many vaccines put a weakened or inactivated germ into our bodies, but not the mRNA vaccines. Instead, they teach our cells how to make a protein or even just a piece of a protein that triggers an immune response inside our bodies. That's why after the second shot of uh, Moderna or Pfizer, for example, um, pa many patients, a, a certain number, can get uh, feel sick for a day or two. And that's because their body is reacting with an uh, immune response to the, um, to the protein that's been created or the instructions of the protein that have been created. Now, COVID mRNA vaccines give instructions for our cells to make a harmless piece of what is called the spike protein. And that's the spike protein that you're seeing in coronaviruses. And it's found on the surface of the COVID-19 virus. So um, once the instructions are inside the muscle cells, the cells use them to, to make the protein piece. And after the protein is made, the cell breaks down the instructions, it breaks down the mRNA and gets rid of it. 
And next, the cell displays the protein piece on its surface. And so our immune systems recognize that protein doesn't belong there and begins building an immune response and making antibodies like what happens in natural infection against COVID-19. And at the end of the process, our bodies have learned how to protect against future infections. So the benefit of mRNA vaccines, like all vaccines, is those vaccinated gain this protection without ever having to risk the serious consequences of getting sick with the COVID-19 virus. So that's the way the COVID-19 mRNA um, vaccine works. It does not go into the cell. Um, and it's really been tested uh, quite rigorously. And in our next segment, I want to spend a little time talking about how clinical trials are done so that you understand how we get this evidence for the medicines we take. And again, it's not a perfect process, but there are a lot of safeguards that have been put in place to protect the public and make sure that the, 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 the research study is on the up and up, that it's been done properly, that it can be replicated, uh, and that it can be shared with other scientists openly and be criticized and um, you know, evaluated so that we then produce safe medicines. We'll be back in just a minute. We'll talk more about these clinical trials and how they're done. And then we'll talk about some resources you can use to learn more about medical science. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, 
Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at GoToHealthMedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, we're back talking about evidence-based medicine, what it is and why we have it. And in this third segment, I want to talk about clinical trials and how they're done and how drugs are approved in the United States so that you can have a better understanding for what you're reading in the news. So we talked a little bit before about the um, MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, and the original research that showed that it caused autism. But one of the major shortcomings of it, it was only done on 12 patients. And, you know, today, 12 patients is really just, you know, an a directional study. It's certainly not a study that you'd rely on to produce a medicine or make a claim about a medicine. So there are basically three phases for clinical trials when a medicine is developed. There's phase one, two, and three. Now, phase one is usually done either on animals or a very, very small group of people to prove the safety or risks of the vaccine. Now, of course, um, Today, again, this has not always been true, but today, um, when patients participate in a clinical trial, they are very aware of what's going to be tested and the potential risks so that they are um, notified of this in advance, not like the horrible um, tests that were done in the Tuskegee experiment where African-American men were given syphilis without knowing it. That was horrible. And we now have a lot of um, you know, safety measures to protect people now when drugs are, are tried. So the first phase one is a safety trial. And it's done on a very small group of people or perhaps first done in animals to see what reactions are and happen in animals. And then it's tried on a very small group of people. That has to then uh, get approved that those results have to be shown. And then there is permission given to go to phase two. And that's with a small group of people, might be a couple of hundred people. And what we're testing there, we kind of know if the the trial goes on, that that the, the, the drug or the vaccine or whatever it is, is safe it might have some um, side effects, but it's, but it's being tried on a small group of people, not to test for safety so much as to test for efficacy or effectiveness. Is this, whatever is being injected or whatever the medicine is, is this going to be effective against a particular disease or preventing a disease or curing a disease? So that's a small group. And again, this is very carefully watched. And again, the, the uh, participants in the trial are watched carefully. And then we go to phase three, which is tried with you know, thousands of people, 20s and 30s and 40s and 50,000. And that's what's happened with the COVID vaccine, the mRNA. Um, as you, if you followed it at all, it was really the process that pharmaceutical companies were going through to prove that their medications were safe among a large group of people. And when you do this, when you try, try something against a large group of people, what you're looking for is do variations in the population cause for differences. So for example, it might work well in males, but not work well in females. It might work well in normal patients or, and, and not work well in heart patients. Um, and it, it, we look for racial differences. We look for gender differences. We, we look for um, 
either even cultural difference, but in the large group, we're really testing. We know it's safe. We know it's proven its effectiveness in phase two. And now we're trying this on a large group of people that's going to represent the larger population. And then if it passes all those tests, then it goes through an approval process at the FDA level. Now, what's happened? There are, of course, exceptions to all this. Um, when the vaccines, the current COVID vaccines got approved, they were given an emergency use approval, an EUA. Now, what that meant was they did go through, these drugs did go through phases one, two, and three for safety and efficacy in large groups. But there was such a crisis with so many people dying of COVID that the FDA gave an exception and they gave an emergency use authorization. So we are now have in the population people taking the COVID vaccine um, and it's been through all the clinical trials, um, but it hasn't yet been officially proved by the FDA. Why? Because the FDA is waiting a certain amount of time until there's enough of a population that's received the vaccine and we have seen whether there are side effects or not in different populations. And when the FDA feels there is enough evidence, they will approve, officially approve the medication. Um, now, if FDA were going with its normal cycle, it would probably take until January of 2022 before they considered uh, approving the vaccine. But because of the deadliness of the COVID virus, and particularly with the the D variant that we're now suffering with. And it's it, what's, what's true about the D variant, it is so much more replicable and so much more um, catchable than the original virus was. It's mutated and mutated to be a much, um, not necessarily more deadly, although they're starting to see that, but much more communicative virus. Um, the FDA is actually gonna move that approval up likely from January, 2022 to sometime this fall. So there are some people who understandably want to wait until it's officially approved by the FDA. But again, as I mentioned before, what they're doing is trading off certain information for risk of getting the COVID virus and risk of spreading the COVID virus and particularly spreading it because it's so much more contagious than the original form was. Viruses by, by nature mutate. Now, most of the mutations, the vast majority of the mutations turn out to produce dead viruses. They basically mutate themselves out of existence, but some mutations um, are successful and they make the virus either more powerful or more communicable. And that's what's happened with the D variant. And that's why we're seeing a new uptick not only in the, in the United States, but around the world as the D variant has taken uh, basically become the major source of COVID in the United States. The old version or the original version is, is, is getting overtaken by the D variant. So you really, if you're not vaccinated, you're really taking a risk of getting the COVID vaccine. I'm sorry, getting the COVID virus. Um, and maybe you'll wait for actual or more proof, but there's risk in waiting for that proof because you could either get it. And again, as I said, maybe you'll have a light case or maybe you will become infected and infect other people who will get a much heavier case and perhaps pass away. Um, what we're also seeing is that COVID uh, vaccinated people are having breakthrough 
um, COVID cases with this D variant. And um, the FDA, I'm sorry, the CDC, you know, the media has saying, oh, they're reversing themselves, but I really think that's unfair. The CDC goes on evidence. And what the CDC, they, you know, a couple of months ago, they came out with a big announcement that said, um, if you're vaccinated, you're safe. And they kind of rolled away the masks and rolled away how we could get together. But then all of a sudden, this D variant came in and it's, we're learning more about the new variant that we did not know. So the CDC just in the last couple of days has come out with new guidelines about masking up again. So it's not that the CDC is, um, you know, is, uh, what do I want to say, incompetent. Um, what they are is responding to evidence. And that's why they can be slow to respond because they're waiting for evidence. And sometimes when they do have, you know, the evidence they're looking for, um, they, they, you know, come out with a reversal or an update to the information they previously had. Why? Because the reality is changing and the facts are changing. It's all evidence-based. Now, what you should know about vaccines there is all vaccines, and this is true of any vaccine, there's a whole activity called pharmacovigilance. Pharma for the pharmaceutical and vigilance for watching and being careful. So there's routine pharmacovigilance for licensed biological products, and it includes expedited reporting of serious and unexpected adverse events, as well as periodic safety reports. Now, this is all required by the FDA. So medications, for the most part, are under some kind of pharmacovigilance um, until there's some kind of um, stability in the medication. And, you know, it's been around for a while. It's been proven. It's been given to lots of people. So there's a whole activity in the pharmaceutical and regulatory space where drugs, even on the market, are being watched to see unexpected adverse events. So we did have, I'm not up to date on it, but we did have a few reports of people who had taken the vaccine and were then having heart trouble. But my, recollect, my recollection, the last data I had was that those people who were having heart trouble had some kind of previous condition um, that would have caused that, that it was not caused by the vaccine. Uh, and again, we go back, to, I go back to the rumor that's going around now about infertility. All that is is correlational. It's a correlation. Two things are happening together, but we don't have evidence that the COVID vaccine is causing infertility. Now, again, if you want to take the risk and not take the vaccine because you're concerned about infertility, that's your choice. But again, you, have, you are under the risk of getting COVID and passing it on to other people. So those are the risks each individual has to take. So um, I think I've covered what I want to cover in terms of evidence-based medicine. Um, what I wanted to do in the last few minutes here is just kind of repeat my, um, my, my goal here in doing GoToHealth. And it really is to educate you and help health professionals get the word out about the latest in medicine so that you can take action to improve your life. Again, we, 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 you know, we may present things to you, but you should always be under the care of your doctor before you try anything. 
Um, and again, with uh, vaccination, you should be consulting with your doctor. Um, I wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't recommend anything else other than that. I'm just kind of sharing with you the facts, and then you and your doctor can decide what's best for you based on facts. But that's the idea of evidence-based medicine. And so what I'm really encouraging you to do in these confusing days of COVID is not just pick up and start passing on um, unsubstantiated information. Yes, you may hear rumors. Yes, you may hear multiple people. This has happened to multiple people. You may, you may hear stories, but my encouragement to you is to always ask, okay, where's the evidence? Two things may be happening together, they're correlating, but it doesn't mean that one thing causes another, just the way that consumption of ice cream does not cause murder during the summer. We just know that those two things are correlated. So my goal here is based upon my communications background and also based upon my experience in health communications is to really share with you the latest evidence-based medicine um, so that you can uh, improve your life and make decisions for yourself with the best information you can possibly use. That's my passion. I've been in communications my entire career. I love communicating with people. I love teaching. Um, I'm also an expert in adult education. We can talk about that sometime, but uh, I just love this field and I've really um, applying my communications background to the health area because I think it's so important and can be such a you know, a huge boon to people if they have good information they can act on and improve their lives. So just as a quick review, we've talked today about evidence-based medicine. It's based on evidence. We have very structured ways of doing clinical trials now, which do which test for safety and then small groups and then large groups of people and the large groups before anything is authorized is testing uh, safety and efficacy among large groups and a variety of people. And then we have pharmacovigilance where medications are watched to make sure there are no adverse events, or if there are, how are we going to deal with them? Now, if you want to learn more about medical education and some of the um, work that I do, um, I have a website called medicalwritingnetwork.com, and that's where I post all the um, trainings that I've done with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Uh, you can join for free. I do charge a small fee for, um, you know, for watching the webinars. They're each an hour long, but you can learn an awful lot about medical communications. It's really an amazing collection of information. And again, this is shared and used by uh, the Centers for Disease Control, and I'm very proud to be working with them and um, I hope today that I've shared some of the information that I've learned over the years about how medical research is done and the safety and efficacy. Of course, nothing is perfect. We do our best and we make um, you know, changes as we go. But I just wanted to make you more aware of what's happening in the world of medical science as we go through the next wave of COVID. And I hope that you all stay safe and healthy. Your families are safe and healthy. God bless. Stay with us. Uh, be with us next week. You can visit us online and watch our videos at gotohealthmedia.com. And uh, stay with us for next week. We'll be back with another great show. God bless. Take care. And thanks for being with us. Thank 
you for tuning in this week to Go to Health Radio. Be sure to join Jonathan Marks and another health expert next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You can also catch the program on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next show, be sure to visit us on the web at gotohealthmedia.com and elevate your life.